Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. There had been abuse in my family, but it was mostly musical in nature. Lover's Lament crap. I want something peppy, something happy, something up-tempo. I want something snappy. For many years, music coming from inside the former Soviet Union was hidden behind the Iron Curtain. Now, amid Olympic fever, we're uncovering it. I'm Greg Cott. And I'm Jim DeRogatis. The Sound Opinions World Tour visits Russia, and we'll review a new album from the now North Carolina-based singer and songwriter, Angel Olsen. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and uh, later on in the show, we're going to continue our Sound Opinions World Tour to Russia, this time in honor of the Winter Olympics in Sochi. Jim, I know you have been watching the luge competition very keenly, getting up early in the morning to see the gold medal competition. Uh, I haven't slept at all. I just stay up to watch it in real time. (laughs) And we've also been talking a lot about this band Pussy Riot out of Russia. Their public notoriety, in fact, has outstripped their music in many ways. But what about the music scene in Russia? That's what we're going to talk about later on in the show. But first, we've got some music news. She keeps them away, Shondo. In a pretty cabinet Let them eat cake, she says Just like Marie Antoinette A building a remedy For Chris Job and Kennedy At any time An invitation you can't take Caviar and cigarettes Well-versed in etiquette Extraordinarily nice She's a killer Queen Got body gelatine Dynamite with a laser beam Greg, you know, we like to keep an eye on the charts and from time to time uh, remark upon uh, accomplishments that are of interest or that are intriguing. In the UK, that band, the geniuses behind the song Killer Queen, Queen has now become the first band in British chart history to sell more than 6 million copies of their greatest hits album. That means that 9.5% of the UK population owns Queen's greatest hits. I mean, that's just astounding, isn't it? That's a whole lot of Freddie Mercury's overbite. (laughs) Uh, The other thing that was really interesting is this week the Bombay Bicycle Club debuted at number one top slot on the British charts with their fourth album, So Long, See You Tomorrow. Now, we hadn't even heard of this band. They're four albums into a career, and so we had to do some research. Here's what I found out. You know, it's an indie rock band that cites as its main inspiration Joni Mitchell, and one of the four guys is the nephew of Kirsty McCall. Now, her we've heard of. We always like a great pop artist. You know, they've got this kind of Beatles-esque sound, and they have a lot of Bollywood samples. They throw in the Indian samples there. Number one in the British Isles. Who knew? Oh, 
That is the Beatles, of course. I want to hold your hand from their 1964 debut performance on the Ed Sullivan Show. But what's interesting about the 50th anniversary of that occasion, the start of the British invasion, you've got this memorabilia market that has always been there for the Beatles, but it has reignited in the last few weeks, which is really saying something. There's a 4 by 2 foot plastic partition that was part of the staging for that Beatles debut in America that is now being sold for a million dollars. Some stagehand cut it out, and it has been passed down through the decades, now selling for a million bucks. So hang on to your missing stage pieces, folks. You never know what they're going to be worth later on down the road. It's been signed by all four Beatles, by the way. There's also a copy of the Hard Day's Night album, a U.K. version, that was presented to the Beatles by a 13-year-old U.K. runaway who was living in Massachusetts at the time. George Martin heard about this girl, had run away from home, was a huge Beatles fan, said, if you come out of hiding, you'll get a chance to meet the Beatles. They're signed albums for you. Well, one of the albums that they signed was the Hard Day's Night album, and that is now worth 60 thousand dollars. This woman is putting it up for sale. In addition, she got a signed copy of With the Beatles, which she gave to a friend. So somewhere out there, there is a friend of this former Massachusetts resident who has a signed copy by all four Beatles of With the Beatles that is worth forty-five to $50,000. Greg, I think that's a challenge to the American Pickers or the Antique Roadshow crew. Before we leave the news, we have one more item. A uh, congrats to Fred Armisen, friend of Sound Opinions, former Chicago musician. Came up from punk rock. Trenchmouth was his band. He is going to be the band leader on Late Night with Seth Meyers. Mm-hmm. An interesting guy. Fred always has been a musician and a comedian. When we had him on the show, we were talking about television and music. Uh, we never would have predicted he'd be the next Paul Schaefer, but here's what he had <laughs> to say. Because I love TV. I grew up on Saturday Night Live. And... I think I've always wanted to do that. The things that I love most about music, the specials on SNL, Devo on Fridays, the things I always liked were bands on TV, and I think it's the TV part of it that really affected me. Like the legend of the phoenix All ends with beginnings What keeps the planets bringing uh, The force of the beginning yeah. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and that is the now ubiquitous hit, Get Lucky. But we're not hearing Daft Punk or Pharrell performing. That is the Red Army Choir, or more specifically, the official academic ensemble of the Ministry of the Interior of the Russian Federation. It's the most recent example of the West reaching beyond what used to be the Iron Curtain, and it's a perfect way to kick off another leg of the Sound Opinions World Tour. With the Winter Olympics underway in Sochi, all eyes are on Russia. And as always, our first thought is, what about the music? 
Greg, if the Olympics opening ceremony was any indication, then there's a rich classical history, impressive ballet, and some really bad pop from Tattoo thrown in for good measure. Pussy Riot, of course, was not invited to perform. They are, in fact, in the United States after being released from prison. But certainly there is more to popular music in Russia than those familiar names. You know, of course, Jim, the art and culture of this region have always been fascinating. I mean, you've got to take into consideration the Soviet Union's tense relationship with the West and the government's equally tense relationship with the artists and musicians in that country. It's not an easy environment in which to flourish creatively. But sometimes, you know, that can make for the best music. The best rock and roll comes out of that tension. Greg, we always like to have a guide to help us on these voyages, so we have enlisted the help of music and cultural critic Artemy Troitsky. Artemy was one of the very first Russians to write about Western music as a young man living under communist rule, and he was even one of the organizers of the first official rock festival in the Soviet Union back in 1980. Artemy joins us now from Moscow. Artemy, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thanks for having me. Oh, we're excited about it. You are Mr. Russian Music now for four or five decades. You started when you were 19, right? Just like Greg and me. Uh, well, I'm afraid this is <laughs> this is exactly so. Yes, I've got my first article on Western rock music published in 1974, and this was about Led Zeppelin. Set the scene for us, Art. In the 70s, how much Western music was making its way to the other side of the Iron Curtain? I mean, you know, Russia was still a very different society, and rock and roll was not welcomed, right? Well, in fact, uh, Western music started to infiltrate in Russia back in the 30s and the 40s, and then it was jazz bands of the swing era. On a massive level, Western musical invasion has started in the 60s, and I think it's the Beatles who are to be blamed for that. <laughs> American rock and roll in the mid-50s didn't make much impact on the Soviet youth. I think that this music sounded probably too exotic. It was maybe too funky, too sexy, too fast for uh, Russian taste. But when the Beatles came with their beautiful melodies and harmony singing and all this... Then it was a love at first sight. Flew in from Miami Beach, B-U-A-C. Didn't get to bed last night. On the way to paperback was on my knee. Man, I had a dreadful fight. I'm back in the USSR. You know how lucky you are, Back in the USSR. From then on, Western music is popular well-selling, much talked about. Western music mm. is on the map. From what I understand, Art, the Beatles were popular with the kids, <laughs> you know, with music lovers, but the state very much was threatened by the Beatles, no? Yes, you're, you're absolutely right, because, of course, the Beatles and rock music or beat music, as it was called at that time, was seen by the authorities as a harmful Western influence, as decadent monkey music, which uh, was uh, designed uh, to spoil Russian youth, who, of course, were true believers in communism and so on. So there was never any Western music appreciated or even sold in it in record stores up until uh, the Perestroika times in the late 80s. 
wow, so this really was the underground, and yet you were writing about it, and from what I understand, DJing private parties, right? Yeah. I mean, all this during the 70s in the Soviet Union. Describe what that time was like. Well, of course, the everyday life of a Russian rock fan in the 60s and the 70s and in the most part of the 80s was quite a special one and a very difficult one. The records were only sold on the black market and one could easily get fined or even arrested for purchasing of of these records or, say, expelled from the young communists' organization, which meant the end of a career. Information mostly came from rather unlikely sources like jammed Western radio station. At that time, we've been religiously listening to shortwave stations like Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, Voice of America, the BBC, and so on. And we were not so much interested in news and politics. We wanted to hear the music programs. Information with a beat. For uncensored news and music, millions of East Europeans switch on Radio Free Europe, the in-sound from outside. So it was absolutely impossible to get any live concert experience because, uh, you know, we could only read about, uh, you know, the Beatles playing at Shea Stadium, uh, Woodstock Festival. And, of course, all this has been very frustrating. But, you know, the forbidden fruit is always the sweetest. So the interest for Western music has been absolutely tremendous. Mm -hmm. So you're writing about it. Were you censored in any way? Could you write anything you want? Could you be an advocate for this kind of music? Or was there a certain amount of, you know, you can't be championing this music too much because we don't want the kids listening to that stuff? This has been quite a tricky case. It was always kind of a cat and mouse game. I mean, my aim was just to tell the kids as much as I could about this music, you know, about the music itself, about the band, about their histories. Uh, I quoted their songs and so on. But of course, of course, I had to cut many corners and I had also to put uh, some rubbish in it. <laughs> like when I wrote articles about, say, The Doors or, or Pink Floyd and so on, of course, I've made emphasis on the fact that these bands are anti capitalist, that these bands stand against <laughs> the war in Vietnam. Just listen to this song, Unknown Soldier, on The Doors' third album. Breakfast where the news is read Television You're listening to Sound Opinions, and we're talking with Russian critic Artemy Trowitsky. Art, what about the indigenous music and kids forming their own bands? Well, I think that we've started to, to have our first homegrown rock bands in the mid-60s, and most of them been following the Beatles, the Beach Boys, and the Rolling Stones. They were all cover bands. They didn't write their own songs. They all tried to sing in English sometimes without any understanding of what the song was about. <laughs> but gradually, the bands started to get the idea of, well, the Beatles are writing their own songs, so why can't we do that? 
And I think that the most important of this new breed of Russian language rock bands with self-generated material was a band from Moscow called Mashina Vremeni, which means a time machine. fascinating to me, Art, is that in the 1980s, something changes. Midway through the decade, the wall comes down, the Soviet Union starts to break up. This was a big time for all Russians, but musically speaking, I've heard it called the golden age of Russian rock. Well, the 80s, of course, has been a very, very turbulent decade in the Soviet Union, and it was split into two parts from 1980 to 1985, and this was the agony of the communist regime. The second part of the 80s was the time of the so-called perestroika and glasnost, and this was also the time when rock music has been finally legalized and became hugely popular in uh, the mass media, and we've started to have first Russian real rock records being produced and sold uh, by millions and so on. But I think that the most fruitful period of Russian rock has been in the first half of the 80s, paradoxically. Uh, It's like, you know, there's a theory that the best rock music is always born in the toughest of times, and this is one of the proofs for that. You know, when the repression of rock has been the strongest and many bands have been blacklisted, some rock personas have been even put to jail, like uh, the frontman of a band called Voskresenia, Alexei Romanov was sentenced for two or three years, uh, Jana Guzarva, the best Russian female rock singer of all times, uh, she's also been put to prison for half a year for forging her student card. So so you're you're arguing that when when it was hardest to make art that's when the art was the most powerful. Yes, yes, the Russian rock was the most inspired and the most furious in a way. The government's been fighting Russian rock and and the rockers they fought back and they've done it with uh, lots of force and talent. So this was the time when the best Russian rock bands have been formed and I mean bands like uh, Kino and Aquarium and DDT, Nautilus Pompilius, uh, Center and so on. Coming up on our world tour, we answer the musical question, who's the Bruce Springsteen of Russia? That and more music from the country after a quick break here on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. And later, we're going to review a new album from the singer-songwriter Angel Olsen. Kalashnikov, Vintikov, 
своими парнями и девушками. Дружба, 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 дружба. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott here with Jim DeRogatis. And from 1983, that is the Russian rock trio Nautilus Pompilius, who were one of the bands stirring things up in the Soviet Union before the fall of the Berlin Wall in the mid-'80s. Now, before the break, our guide, Moscow-based music critic Artemy Trowitsky, was telling us about that turbulent time in the early 1980s. This was also the time of an amazing underground taping phenomenon. It was called Mag Is That, as in Sam Is That. But Sam Is That was about illegal literature, like Solzhenitsyn's novels and so on. But Mag Is That, from Magnetophone Is That, was for endless home taping. Since there were absolutely no real records, real albums or singles on sale, In the Soviet Union, kids were taping their favorite Russian rock bands on reel-to-reel and cassette tape machines, and there were tens of millions of copies of of those tapes. It was a huge underground industry. You mentioned uh, Samizdat, which I gather was when censorship and controversial materials, literature primarily, was being exchanged underground. Political writers like uh, Solzhenitsyn. Culturally, Artemy, did these bands have the same impact in terms of the effect on their listeners that a Solzhenitsyn did on his readers? Well, I think that Samizdat and Magizdat, or or underground Russian uh, Russian rock, they've been of very different nature, because Samizdat and Solzhenitsyn's novels they have appealed mostly to the so-called intelligentsia, the intellectuals, whereas rock music appealed to tens of millions of kids, of of girls and boys who simply wanted simple answers, but for approximately the same questions that Alexander Solzhenitsyn has been answering. What are these bands singing about during this era? Were they addressing the the situation in the country and the Soviet Union's place in the world, or were they singing about their personal lives? What was going on in the music from a a lyric standpoint? Well, first of all, I have uh, to claim that the strongest side of Russian rock music have always been lyrics, the contents, the message. Musically speaking, we've had very few rock bands who came up with something new or very impressive. But we've had a plenty of fantastic rock poets. So in this respect, Russian rock music has always been more like, say, Bob Dylan or Leonard Cohen or Neil Young rather than the Rolling Stones or Pink Floyd. Море расступилось передо мной, не выдержав жара огня, и все стрелки внутри зашкаливали при первых проблесках дня. Я не мог оторвать глаз от тебя, не мог оторвать глаз от тебя, не мог оторвать глаз от тебя. Very few rock bands have been openly political. I think it was probably 
partly for the censorship reasons, but partly also because of the fact that there's been many other things apart from, uh, you know, say the KGB or the Communist Party or such things that young kids wanted to think about. And this was hypocrisy, alienation, alcoholism, uh, drugs. And all those topics, they've been absolutely forbidden and absolutely out of place in the official uh, Soviet culture. So it wasn't much more dangerous to sing about, say, KGB than to sing about people uh, drinking themselves to death in Russia. When the Berlin Wall finally fell and you had this sense of a new Russia being born, what kind of effect did that have on the music? Was that a flourishing of a new sound or did it have the opposite effect on the music? Well, in the second half of the 80s, when underground rock music has been suddenly legalized, it's been tremendously popular. But soon there was some kind of a hangover situation for several reasons. One of them was that the audience simply got slightly fed up with Russian rock. It was too serious. It was too challenging, despite several attempts by, say, a band called Gorky Park, by a band called Kino, by Boris Gribinshikov from Aquarium and several other Russian bands who've got contracts with Western labels. All those attempts to put Russian rock on the map, they all have failed. So by the beginning of the 90s, this classical stage, uh, the golden era of Russian rock, has suddenly vanished. And there was uh, already something completely different. The dominating uh, style in Russia was something that we call papsa, which is derivative from uh, pop music. And uh, this is just very light, entertaining, danceable, and pretty stupid pop songs. Then we also started to produce something quite original, but no less awful. <laughs> and this is the style called Ruski Chanson, Russian Chanson. And this is like a redneck type uh, ballads. I mean, the, the closest thing in America that I can think of is probably country music, country music, but of the most primitive kind, you know, sentimental songs about prison, about broken hearts, and so on. Another trend which got started in the Russian rock music in the 90s was that girls have suddenly appeared on stage in rather big quantities. 
This was probably because rock was considered such a dangerous trade, uh, you know, for strong male types only, like truck driving or something like that. So <laughs> we didn't have any girls in rock music for decades. But in the 90s, there was a whole bunch of talented girls with electric guitars. The best known of them is singer and songwriter named uh, Zimfira. <laughs> It's a fairly bleak picture, it sounds like, uh, with with a few exceptions. The band that everybody in the West has heard about the most the last few years have been Pussy Riot. What has their impact been in Russia? Well, actually, the first Russian pop act which became internationally known was a female duo called Tattoo, T-A-T-U, who have released an album via Interscope, I think, in the United States mm -hmm. and had a couple of big hits, uh, all the things she said and so on. But of course, they've been like one-hit wonders in the USA and globally. But this was the first case of a Russian pop act becoming internationally renowned. Well, I wouldn't say that I'm proud of that, because I think that Tattoo was quite a mediocre pop project. But I'm very proud of Pussy Riot. Although, unfortunately, I do not really consider them a musical band. Pussy Riot are a feminist art group, first of all, and apart from different kinds of actions and performances and happenings, they also have recorded uh, several punk rock songs and performed them in public, in the streets, and made videos out of them, and this is how they uh, became known initially in Russia, and then after their scandalous performance in a church and being arrested and being sentenced to two years in prison, of course, they became a big international celebrities and for very, very good reasons. I mean, it was a very powerful combination of things. I mean, the fact that they are girls, the fact that they're anonymous, the fact that they're political activists uh, with their hearts and minds in the right place, and rock and roll and feminism, and uh, this was a truly killing combination.
You're listening to the Sound Opinions World Tour visit to Russia with our guide, Artemy Trowitsky. Art, if you were to point someone to one or two bands that represent the best of Russian rock music, who would they be? Well, I think that probably the most popular Russian rock band ever is a band called Kino. They've started in the beginning of the 80s, about 1982. They've been led by a guy of Korean origin named Victor Tsoi. And musically speaking, Kino were a typical new wave, new romantic, post-punk band. I mean, if you listen to their albums, you will easily see the influence of bands like Joy Division, The Cure, and even some lighter bands like, say, Duran Duran. I think that the main reason why Kino became so hugely popular is because they they appealed to everyone and they've been sexy, you know. <laughs> Being sexy actually is quite an unusual thing for Russian rock. And musically speaking, also, you know, this sexual element, this, you know, Iggy Pop element uh, was always absent from Russian music. And Viktor Tsoi of Kino is rather an exception from this rule. He was sexy and dark and mysterious. I mean, he was like Russian Jim Morrison. And just like Jim Morrison, he also got killed in a car crash uh, at the very peak of his popularity. Then I think I want to mention a band called DDT, led by Yuri Shevchuk. And I would describe Yuri Shevchuk as Russia's Bruce Springsteen. I mean, musically speaking, DDT have been always a very kind of down-to-earth, very basic rock band, you know, just like Bruce Springsteen, E Street Band. And they've been always a band with a message. So when we talk about the political, the social element in Russian rock and roll music, then DDT is the first name that always comes to mind. And I think that nowadays, probably the most popular Russian protest rock song is Yuri Shevchuk's song called Svoboda, Freedom. And this is a song that is always performed by revolutionary masses at political rallies. I've also mentioned Jana Guzarova, a girl with a very unusual and kind of twisted fate. So she's been put to jail and she has emigrated and lived several years in America. 
in Los Angeles without any success. Then she returned back uh, to Russia in the mid-90s and started her career anew and so on. She is tremendously talented. And, and I think that if she was also a little bit more lucky, she could be a real international pop star coming from Russia because she's got tremendous voice, very interesting and original personality. And, well, if, say, Bjork from Iceland done it, I'm quite sure that Jana Guzarova from Russia could also become an international pop and rock superstar. Yeah, she does have a tremendous voice, Art. One thing I'm curious about is, um, you know, as we've trotted the globe on this series and talked to people in, in Sweden, in Africa, all over the place, hip-hop has made an impact almost everywhere, every corner of the world. And yet, you know, we've been talking for some time. Uh, has there been any impact of hip-hop in Russia? Well, I think that rap and hip-hop, they've had a rather delayed impact in Russia. I mean, in the 80s, hip-hop virtually didn't exist in Russia, but from the beginning of the 90s, started to have lots of FM radio broadcasting playing Western hits, and of course we've had uh, MTV Russia and so on. And right now we do have big and healthy and quite an interesting hip-hop scene in Russia. Like right now, a popular theory is that hip-hop has taken the place of Russian rock when it comes to social and political command and so-called protest songs. In my opinion, the best political singers in Russia right now are two rappers. One is a guy nicknamed Noise MC, and another guy named, or rather nicknamed, uh, Vasya Ablomov. I think that they're fantastic, young, very clever, and very brave guys, and many of their songs, they feel like a newspaper article. You talk about Noise MC's raps sounding like they're lifted from the newspapers. And of course, the biggest news this month is the Winter Olympics in Sochi. This was a controversial choice by the Olympics Committee. What was the response from Russian musicians? Well, I've told you that we do have a lot of protest songs being now written and performed in Russia. Of course, they never televised these songs. They never put these protest songs on the radio, but they're all over Russian internet and they are often played in small clubs, at concerts. 
I haven't heard any songs dedicated to the Olympic Games. It's rather a sickening issue, the Olympic Games, because on one hand, of course, you know, we love the idea of the Olympic Games and we don't want these games to be broken or, or to end up in complete disaster. But on the other hand, you know, we, you know, we have very bitter feelings about about the Olympics. And I think that maybe because of this controversy, maybe because of all those mixed feelings about the Olympics, uh, there are no visible songs on this topic. We've been talking with Artemy Trowitsky here on Sound Opinions. He's a Moscow-based music critic and the author of Back in the USSR, The True Story of Rock in Russia. Artemy, thanks for talking with us. Well, thank you, and all the best. For a list of all the Russian music featured on this week's show, visit soundopinions.org. And we want to hear from you. Do you have any experience with the Russian music scene? Where should the Sound Opinions World Tour touch down next? Call 888-859-1800. Up next, I choose a song I can't live without. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and that is High Five from the new album by Angel Olsen. Burn Your Fire for No Witness, her third record. Angel Olsen, born in St. Louis, uh, started performing in coffee shops there as a teenager, then moved to Chicago. She's now living in North Carolina. She got her start on the national level by touring with the Cairo Gang and singing harmonies with Will Oldham, a.k.a. Bonnie Prince Billy. Meanwhile, she started working on her own music as well, releasing a 2010 EP, Strange Cacti, that came out first on cassette and later was issued as a 12-inch. 
Her full-length debut in 2012, Halfway Home, really upped the ante. Uh, an emerging singer-songwriter with this voice that uh, had some people rhapsodizing about her in comparison to people like Roy Orbison and Patsy Cline. They heard this sort of throwback sound in her voice with these contemporary lyrics. And now she's back with another album, this time working with... John Congleton, a guy who's worked with a lot of major indie stars in recent years, uh, people like St. Vincent and Jonah Newsom. The album is called Burn Your Fire for No Witness, and here's a song from it called White Fire from Angel Olsen on Sound Opinions. Everything is tragic It all just falls apart But when I look into your eyes It pieces up my heart Put it all to bed I wish sometimes I could take back Every word I've said I walk back in the night alone Got caught up in my song Forgot where I That was White Fire from Angel Olsen's Burn Your Fire for No Witness. Powerful stuff, Greg. When she gives us those lines, I heard my mother thinking me right back into my birth. Hmm. I laughed so loud inside myself it all began to hurt. You know, really great lyrics delivered with a powerful voice, and I particularly appreciate the more garage rock ensemble band thing that she's doing now, as opposed to earlier on where, where things were a little more Spartan. A lot of our critical peers keep saying, Leonard Cohen, Leonard Cohen, you know, she's the distaff yeah. Leonard Cohen for a new generation. I'm not hearing that. I, I'm hearing some who's forwarding the tradition of what Liz Fair was doing in the 90s. Not as foul-mouthed, not as mm. sensationalistic, arguably a little smarter, and certainly with a better voice. When she does the more kind of monotone rock, you know, female Lou Reed thing, it mm. sounds very early Liz Fair, but she also has this falsetto that really can transcend above. And her understanding of mixing those two vocal styles and mixing soft and loud dynamics, you know, really tearing into it with the band at times and other times doing things very quietly and acoustically make for a really great and diverse album you know she's not 100 percent there yet you still get the sense that this is an artist who's evolving but this is definitely worth your time i think uh, it's a buy it record yeah i agree with you jim that uh, the comparisons are sometimes way out of line but she's showing a lot of growth here as an artist on her third album you can see the progression with each of her records and this is another step forward it is her rock album. As she said, she's being typecast as, well, wait a minute, you've changed your sound. But those people are also ignoring the fact that the album begins and ends with these really 
more quiet kind of moments, which return her to her roots in those coffee houses. Yes, yeah, some very quiet moments here. So the range is there. I, I like the fact, though, that she's added that rock element to it. You know, there, that one song where she's talking about uh, to scream the feeling till there's nothing left. I mean, you just mm-hmm. see her, you know, ringing herself out. And these are a series of, of relationship songs. But at the same time, there's a twist to them. You know, as a lyricist, I'm impressed with some of the little nuances in her writing. A song like Iota, where she's talking about, you know, I'm going through all this turmoil. It's ugly. It's, it's, it's hurtful. I'm feeling, you know, this anguish. But what if I imagine an alternative life where nothing really happened? If only all the hopes were to be here we just close our eyes and we want to disappear If only all the love we needed was gained If only we could always stay the same And she paints that picture and you realize at the end of it, that's more horrifying than the turmoil. It's yeah. like, okay, we wouldn't be living anymore. That's why right. we are alive, to experience these kind of things so we can appreciate the highs with the lows. That's really ambitious for a three-minute tune. Yeah, it's, it's very well done. Angel Olsen with uh, Burn Your Fire for No Witness. It's a buy-it record for me. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. As often as possible on Sound Opinions, we like to swim out to the desert island, pop a quarter in the desert island jukebox, and play a song we cannot live without. And Jim, this week it's your turn. Well, Greg, this week's uh, choice on my part was inspired by us talking to Artemy Troitsky. You know, we had him on the ISDN line from Moscow, and we were chatting and just having a great time. And one of the things he said, you know, we were asking, how, you know, what were the big American or British bands, Western bands in, in Russia, you know, that, that penetrated and made huge impact. And one of them that he cited was the Lords of the New Church. <laughs> and you and I both looked yeah. at each other, right? And I'm just thinking, wow, of all the bands, the obscure 80s bands to have made a huge <laughs> impact behind this, the Iron Curtain. The Lords of the New Church. Now, this happens to be a band I love. This was a post-punk supergroup. Steve Bader's had been the leader of the Dead Boys, big on the CBGB scene after moving to New York from Cleveland. But a second tier also ran in the great New York right. punk bands. The Damned, sort of similar in their position in the UK. You know, there was the Clash and the Sex Pistols, right? And then the Damned were kind of jokey. You know, some great songs, New Rose, I right. think you played once as a Desert Island track. So the, the guitarist of the Damned, Brian James, gets together with Steve Bader's. And their idea was, we're going to do punk rock energy, but but with goth rock trappings, a lot of heavy darkness here, and uh, also like garage band from the 60s melodies, right? Mm -hmm. Those Nuggets band melodies. And they had this initial single in the U.S. called Open Your Eyes. I love this song. They went on and on, and they never really got any better. From 1982 to 1989, they uh, put out four records. And then tragically, in 1990, uh, Steve Bader's died after being hit by a car on the streets of Paris. The band had just broken up a little before that. 
that. But they're well worth remembering, and the first self-titled Lords of the New Church album from 1982 is definitely a keeper, as is this song. Now, it was much better live. The 80s production (laughs) on this song sort of sinks it. Try to listen past that and imagine how good it might have been live on stage. Here's the Lords of the New Church with Open Your Eyes on Sound Opinions. Video games train the kids for war Only she can have fashion stores Life old is done the job This is filled by the rich delight Assassination politics Violence rules within our nation's midst Well, ignorance is their power too of the new church with open your eyes my desert island jukebox pick this week greg what do we have on the show next week i'm pumped about next week's show jim we've got an in-studio visit from deltron 3030 which includes del the funky homo sapien kid koala and dan the automator greg as always some quick thank yous to say on the way out sound opinions is produced by robin lynn jason saldana and anthony martinez and our intern is jake smith On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. Hello, my name is Abe Trieger. I am calling about the couples in rock and roll. I want to mention Richard and Linda Thompson, who were partners for many years. album shoot out the lights which is about their divorce is one of the most cutting and searing pieces of music of all rock history i wish i could please you tonight with my medicine just 
opinions on sound opinions call our hotline 888-859-1800 we'll be back next week with more sound opinions produced by wbez chicago and distributed by prx oh,